Kairos with RoboHub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hi and welcome to the RoboHub podcast. Today marks the first of a series of episodes covering interviews from the International Conference on Intelligent Robots and Systems, IROS, which took place in Madrid at the beginning of October. Under the motto, Towards a Robotic Society, the conference brought together researchers, companies and end users from across the world to discuss how robotics will change our lives in the near future. Our interview Audro was at the conference, armed with his recorder, to capture some of the exciting work showcased at the event. And today's episode includes three of his encounters. First up, Audro spoke to Alexandros Kokas, a PhD candidate from Imperial College London, about a framework to help understand where a person is looking and their intentions. This technology may be used in future to help paraplegic patients or to support surgeons in surgery. Hi, welcome to RoboHub's podcast. Hello. Would you introduce yourself? Yes. I am Alexandros Kogas. I'm working with the HAMS lab at Imperial College London with the Department of Surgery Cancer. Here I have, uh, I'm, doing, I'm, fin- I'm doing my PhD. I'm in the third year of my PhD. Mm-hmm. My PhD is mainly engaged interactions within the operating theatre. Ah. It will allow surgeons of the operating team to have uh, independence and do some automa- automa- automated applications that will enhance safety and collaboration and training with the operating theater. Okay. So a surgeon is wearing a pair of glasses that figures out where they're looking, and then you use this to gauge intention, and then you use this to um, improve the interaction. Yeah. yeah, more or less the same. We use eye-tracking glasses, the lightweight eye-tracking conversion glasses. Yeah. We also use 3D cameras. In, the, in this particular case, the Kine camera, they were quite cheap. Yes. Uh, and we mount them on the ceiling of the opening theater, so we physically control the space, and we have perceptual information about the space, so we know where the surgeons are, where the head position of the surgeon is, and the, the team of the opening theater. We know where objects are, we know what kind of objects we have. It can be a, a screen, it can be a surgical instrument, or it can be a person. So we built the framework that is in, uh, is estimating the the fixation, the gaze direction within the space. Mm-hmm. If, we co- if we combine it with the object detection, then we have gaze get object detection, so we know at which object the surgeon is looking at. And we, also, we can also uh, co-register a robot within the space, so we can interact with the robot. So mm-hmm. when the surgeon is fixated on a surgical instrument, the robot is, going, is able to bring the surgical instrument to, to the surgeon. So the assumption is that the surgeon looks at what they want, and then the robot can fetch it? So Every 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 task that is being performed by the by the robot is being dependent on the object. So if the object is a surgical instrument, which is on a surgical tray, yes, and we have already programmed this in the system, then it's going to act as a robotic nurse. So if the object being fixated is a, is a, is a monitor, a screen, uh, then the surgeon is able to interact with the screen, so it can navigate with that biology images, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what do we do? Is we Build this framework. So one part is this uh, 3D gaze framework. Another part is object detection. We we'll combine this, and they will build applications. Uh, in this case, 
here in Iros, we have developed an application which is not to the petting theater, but it's for the general, general area of uh, healthcare, so it's for assistive living. What we do is we use the same. We, uh, people for, in the diplegic uh, people, uh, they cannot move their, their arms or their legs. So and it's very important for them to be able to perform activities with their hands in everyday life. There are already some applications for people with disabilities, like there are uh, robotic manipulators on a, on a wheelchair, but there are being manipulated with a joystick. But people that can move their arms, they cannot use this kind of application. So we use this framework, so we use the eye training glasses and Kinect in conjunction with the robot, in order to, to assist the, the user to interact with the environment in everyday life just wearing these glasses. So the user, the user is in the, in the wheelchair wearing eye tracking glasses. Yes. There's a great camera uh, on, the wheelchair, on the wheelchair. And a robot manipulator can be a conventional one. So when the user is fixating on, on a specific object, it can be a, a serial box. Then on the serial box, people program that when the, the attention of the user is there, then the robot is going to uh, grab this uh, serial box. Mm-hmm. It's going to detect a ball around. It's going to empty the serial within this ball. It's going to bring the ball to the user. We ideally we need to have an inventory of, of tasks for daily living. Uh, we're not working on this at the moment. There are other laptops working on this specific application. There was no on, on hands that actually uh, they're doing only, only exactly this. So we provide this gaze framework that allows the user to have free view, uh, free view in, interaction with the environment. It can move around if if he or she is able to move, uh, and can with the natural gaze can interact with the environment. And we assume this is going to be really useful for people with disabilities. For instance, like Stephen Hawking was not able to move his arm, but he could move his eyes. So people uh, suffering from ALS, uh, from muscular atrophy, they can always move their eyes. So we, we assume that the, the gaze, the human eyes, are uh, their direct interface from the human brain. And in this time, we use the gaze for interactions in space. Gotcha. And how does it work? So, the user uh, is wearing identity glass, identity glasses. Yep, which has a camera pointed at their eye, and that tells you where their eye is. So, this is a commercial identity glass to have a camera uh, that is, uh, is looking at the eyes, yep. another camera that is capturing the environment. Yep. Uh, so, these two are combined. Then you map them. Yeah. yeah I, they have been mapped by, uh, by the commercial identity glasses. So, perform yep. a calibration, 3D calibration. So, you are be, the user has been asked to fixate on a specific point. And another user is clicking at this point, so we can map yes. the scene camera, the cameras, in fact. And, and then um, you basically assume if they look at it for a period of time that that's what they're interested in? Is it like probabilistic in some sense? At, at the moment, it's simple as dual time. So as when, what? Dual time. So if the user fixates for more than three seconds ah, on, an, on an object that's been trained by the system, then the robot is, uh, is acting on this. Yes. Uh, for a real application in a, in, in a real environment, for a, a real user to use it, of course we need to further improve it. And we're already working on this. Do some also behavioral analysis, I mean, in test recognition, that we can predict whether the user actually, if he, fixa- if he or she fixates fixa- for more than three seconds in a specific object, does he want to, uh, to interact with this or not? This is, is based on other works that take into account the gaze patterns in order to, exactly, to, to detect whether there is an intention to drive this object. Mm-hmm. But at the moment, it's, uh, the interaction is quite simple, simplistic. So we mainly saw the proof of concept that we can use this framework for assistive living. Yes. Gotcha. And what's the future of this for you? 
So, uh, this is quite interesting project. Uh, it's not within the operating theater, as I mentioned earlier, but this framework can actually prove that it can, yeah, the loss of domains can be used. And ideally, we could combine this with a commercial, uh, uh, commercial arms like Kinova robot, for instance. Kinova is providing a lightweight arm with a, uh, with a, on, a, on a wheelchair that is used with a joystick, but we can do it with a gaze. We also, in our lab, in Harm's lab, uh, as Professor George, George Melonis, they have, uh, we are working with some master students on building robots, lightweight robots that can be even be folded into the packet, uh, into, into the pocket, in pocket size of the user. So, in Predator, for instance. So, there are lots of components that can be improved. We also can use AR glasses, augmented reality glasses. So, we can have a menu, for instance, within the user that is going to allow him or her to. Uh, to have more independence and more, and be, being able to choose between automatic or manual mode, being able to uh, further uh, confirm that this is the intended action, for instance. Yeah. So it's going to maybe simulate the action of the robot before this happens. They need to, to, to confirm it so that it's much safer. Um, so there are lots, lots of work that can, can be done. Uh, maybe collaborating with other uh, labs or companies would be very useful because there are labs and companies that are. To develop this uh, uh, a, 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 a humanoid grasper that is also being programmed for specific uh, tasks of uh, daily living. Mm-hmm. So we don't need to work on this part because there's already work on this. But if combined all of them, we can make really useful. It's the most important that it's going to be a useful product for people who have this kind of motion disabilities. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you very much. And next up is Katie Driggs-Campbell, a postdoc at Stanford's Intelligent System Laboratory and soon-to-be assistant professor at UIUC. She spoke to Audro about how autonomous cars can learn from human actions and behaviours. They discuss a model of a human driver that they use to infer what is happening in the world, for example, a human using a crosswalk, and how they evaluate this work. Hi, welcome to RoboHub. Hi. Would you introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, my name is Katie Driggs-Campbell, and I'm currently a postdoc at the Stanford Intelligence Systems Laboratory. And what is the work you're presenting here? So today I'm presenting this idea called People as Sensors, where we're trying to observe uh, basically human actions and make inferences about the state of the world. What kind of actions do you observe from people? Mm-hmm. So in this case, we're, so we're motivated by autonomous vehicles. So if you consider a case where you are... Um, autonomous vehicle and you're approaching a crosswalk. Um, so crosswalks are actually very dangerous setups because there are lots of other cars around, there are lots of other uh, pedestrians, and these pedestrians are often occluded. So this actually leads to very dangerous cases where you might accidentally or almost hit a pedestrian because they're occluded as they're entering the crosswalk. So in this case, what we're trying to do is start observing other vehicles around us, um, observing their actions, and start making inferences about what is causing those actions. And again, specifically looking at this sort of environment representation case. So we're trying to learn that sort of relationship between actions and maps. Gotcha. And so are you specifically looking at other cars, not the gestures of pedestrians or anything? No. So in this case, we are sort of making the assumption that we cannot see the pedestrian that might be there. So they are occluded. We're trying to observe just the human-driven vehicles that might be causing the occlusion. Okay. And so what, um, what things do you observe in vehicles? So if they're slowing down is one. 
Basically, what other things? So if they're stopped, accelerating, uh, moving constant, uh, and we get some information about position as well. So basically, how far are they from, say, a crosswalk? Okay. So how does it work? Like getting under the hood a little bit. How does, like, what's happening? Yeah. So this basically builds up uh, really common ideas from the mapping community. So in the mapping community, you basically grid up your world, and you basically have different grid cells in that represent space in your world, and you're trying to say what is the probability of each of these spaces being occupied. So is there something here or is there not? And there's um, pretty nice update techniques for saying if I have some sensor measurement, say from a lidar. Uh, can I update the probability of that being occupied or not? So if I get nothing from my LiDAR, I assume there's nothing there. But if I get no sensor region, I'm going to basically have an unknown. So 50-50, could be, could not be. So what we're doing is we're basically taking a human model uh, and incorporating that in. So we're basically doing this update equation now with this model of human driving behavior. So when we don't get sensor readings from, say, a LiDAR, we do get some by the human driver that we're watching. Hmm. Okay, and then you update the probability that there's something occupying this and you shouldn't be going. How does it work for a walking pedestrian? Like, yeah. how does it work for a moving set of grids, I guess? Yeah, yeah. So there's some sort of interesting things when you actually have dynamic uh, maps. Um, and in this case, we sort of do one shot and by observing uh, how the... Uh, so for each time step, you calculate. Yeah, yeah. So this is constantly updating as we're observing how the car is behaving and updated know, sensor measurements from the more traditional sensors. We're constantly updating this and hoping we're capturing it, basically. Gotcha. But so it doesn't, there's no dynamic component to it? It's just uh, every single time step you're going to basically guess at the probability of a single grid cell being occupied? So in some formulations, yes. You can also apply a Kalman filter to basically your representation. Yeah. But you do have to make a lot of assumptions on, say, the velocity and things like that. But you can do that, and that actually does improve some cases. Okay. Awesome. What's the future of this work? So uh, now we're actually applying this to a real vehicle setup, so you can... Sorry, you can see the picture here. Um, and we have a kind of cool little pedestrian on wheels here that we're doing this on vehicle test with. Um, we're also moving this to a more multi agent setting. So, in the case studied here, we're just looking at a few vehicles and a single pedestrian. But we're basically uh, looking at now a sensor fusion like framework so we can look at more complex things. Okay. And actually, just uh, so in the current setup, it's simulation and you um, have pedestrians walking around and you are modeling other cars. Mm -hmm. So we've done, most of the um, experiments were done in simulation. So we have a human in the loop uh, test setup at Berkeley so we can yep. collect realistic driver data. We also did use real world driving data. So there's one pretty good publicly available uh, vehicle pedestrian data set that we did also use and test our methods on. Gotcha, mm -hmm. what were your results? Uh, it works. <laughs> um, so in the case um, where we did the experiments ourselves, um, we had really good information because it is in simulation. You don't have to worry about too much variability. Um, so everything there worked really uh, well. Um, one of the interesting things we found in the real world data set is that we found significant improvement in the cases that the vehicle was acting very dynamically. So in the case that they were accelerating, decelerating, or just being stopped. So then we had a significant improvement over the baseline. But in the case where they were just moving at a constant velocity, we actually didn't really improve over just assuming a uniform distribution. How could you improve in that case? So in this case, because we're working on a very general public data set, we didn't have any of the context. So we didn't know if they were moving at a constant speed that was very different from, say, the speed limit, or sort of we didn't know really what was going on. Um, so it kind of 
reflected in our results. So it showed that it was basically better to, if you don't have any context whatsoever, it's better basically to assume uniform that you don't know anything. And then, so you're starting to be an assistant professor quite soon. Yes. What will your direction be when you begin your, your lab? Thanks. Yeah, I'll be starting as an assistant professor at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign uh, in the Electrical and Computer Engineering Department. Cool. Congratulations. Um, thank you very much. Um, and basically, my work is thinking about how we can develop safe and interactive robotics um, that have to operate out in the real world around with people. So working on a ton of vehicles, how we can design better decision-making control systems and actually verify that they are safe. Great. Thank you. Thank you. And last but not least for today, Martin Carlsen, a PhD student from Lund University in Sweden. He spoke to Audro about mirroring hands, a haptic interface with robotic arms that requires no force sensing. They discussed a simple feedback law that allows a mirroring of forces and future work planned to deal with joint friction. Hi, welcome to RoboHub's podcast. Thank you. Would you introduce yourself? Yes, of course. My name is uh, Martin Carlsson, uh, and I work at Lund University at the Department of Automatic Control. What is the work you're presenting here today? Uh, today we are looking upon uh, a haptic interface uh, with uh, two robotic arms. Mm -hmm. And uh, the idea is that uh, we would like uh, one of the sides uh, to be remotely controlled by an operator. Uh, so we are retaining a, a constant offset in position and orientation between these two uh, end effectors of, of the manipulators. Yep, and you're not doing it by mirroring the forces that one sees on the other one on the end effector. What is the approach you're taking? So we are we're not explicitly measuring the forces, even though that is, is one option. Uh, in the experiments, we wanted to look upon the worst case when, when the robots are not equipped with uh, force sensors. But in, can't you use back EMF or electromotive force, back electromotive force to measure kind of? the forces on something? Uh, that is one option. W what we are doing is that uh, we have a feedback law that ensures that we have a, a constant position offset between uh, the arms. Yes. Uh, and actually it's enough uh, to reflect forces between the different sides of, of, the, of the manipulators. So for instance, is, if one of them is stopped, that will be experienced on the other side as, uh, with, the, with the corresponding force. Mm -hmm. And so how would you visualize this? Just for our listeners who'd like to picture what's kind of happening. Say that uh, we have two uh, robot arms uh, and uh, an operator would like to, uh, uh, to move uh, a distant robot arm uh, remotely. It can then uh, grab uh, the present arm mm -hmm. uh, and move it a little bit. And with the arms that are kind of next to each other, an easy way, you were explaining it to me earlier, is if you imagine like some stick between them that's constrained like horizontally or something or basically in their relative positions at the beginning yeah and that just distance is maintained yeah that's uh, that's exactly it so uh, you can envision it as if these end effectors were rigidly attached and this is achieved uh, virtually by the feedback control mm -hmm. uh, and that way we can feel uh, forces uh, between between the two manipulators gotcha and uh, what kind of future work do you imagine with it? So, what's the next steps for you in this? I think one interesting direction is to uh, see how far we can reach uh, if we also use uh, force sensors. How do you imagine it being improved? Uh, 
Uh, I think that uh, what is limiting the performance uh, right now is that if the interaction forces are, are very small, yes. then they are not so well reflected to the other side. Uh, the reason is that we have uh, joint friction uh, to deal with also. Uh, th these are small, but, uh, but some, some small interaction forces can, uh, can vanish because of this. Uh, if we measure interaction forces ex explicitly, this can help uh, in those cases. Gotcha. Thank you. Thank you. And that's it for today's coverage from IROS. But fear not, there's more interviews from IROS still to come in upcoming episodes covering all kinds of fascinating topics, including haptic tweezers, odor localization, and robots for children. But before we end for the day, we really wanted to thank all those listeners who have become patrons of the RoboHub podcast through our Patreon campaign. It is because of your generosity that we can send interviewers to conferences such as IROS and then bring you the latest news, developments and hot topics from the world of robotics. Our podcast will always be free, but if you can spare a few dollars a month, you can make a huge difference to what we're able to do. If you'd like to know more about becoming a patron, just visit robohub.org forward slash podcast, where you will also find all our past episodes. We'll be back with more in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. iROS with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics.